You're listening to Leveling Up, where we'll show you how to win at the game of life and business. It's time to power up your skills through life gamification with your host, Eric Sue. Okay, everyone. Today, we've got Nigel Echoes, who is the co-founder and CEO of Flick, which is a live group chat platform for sports influencers and their fans. Previously, co-founder and CEO of FanDuel, which sold in 2017, backed by the likes of Google Ventures, Time Warner, KKR, and I don't need to go down the list. It's, you got some good names right there already. Mm-hmm. And really loves online. We're going to talk about online communities. We're going to be talking about sports trading cards, all the cool things that I'm really looking into and I'm big on right now. So Nigel, first and foremost, how's it going? That's great. Yeah, really good. Gearing up for the NBA season. Yeah. Well, that's uh, what, 18? Yeah, uh, it's three weeks away. It's the 22nd. Three weeks away. All right. Well, good deal. Well, I guess the question for you first would be FanDuel. There's some sports involved there. Yeah, yeah. There's some sports involved. So what is your background? How does it lead up to where you are right now? Yeah, so I've actually been involved in sort of sports, sports betting for nearly 20 years. Uh, Actually, for about 20 years. I joined a startup in 2000, which was in London, which is a sports betting startup. And so I got a taste of that market. I worked for a couple of startups. I went back to corporate world. I actually worked in consultancy for a few years, but I knew my heart was in startups and wanted to start my own thing. And that's what kind of led to starting FanDuel. In 2007, we originally started it. Got it. So I just want to touch upon FanDuel briefly because I've always been curious. I mean, it's when you start something like that, it's boom, fast paced. Let's, we got to raise money. We got to go now, right? And, mm-hmm. and so it's like, and then you have to, there's, to me, it seems like there's a lot of hurdles that you have to clear regulation wise and all that. So yeah. can you just talk about some of those challenges that you faced. <laughs> like, you know, so FanDuel raised a lot of money. We raised about 450 million. That's quite a lot of money. But it wasn't really like that early on. Early on, it was like every startup, which is, we had a product that users quite liked and we needed to get more of those users cost effectively so that we could scale it to a point. And actually early on, I think by the point we had raised like sort of 15 million, we were close to profitability, but you know, the market became very competitive and we also saw the market was much bigger than we sort of initially thought. And so we started to raise a lot more and more money because when you're acquiring a user for $50 and that user's worth $500, well, the logical thing is to acquire a lot more users. And the only way to do that is to raise a lot more money. And that's what kind of drove the growth. But early stage at FanDuel was very similar to my startup today, which is still getting that product right and then working on efficiently acquiring customers to kind of scale the business. Got it. And so how did you, I mean, because this was your, you had a company before this, right? So we had a company called HubDub. Yeah. We pivoted that into becoming FanDuel. So I guess it was the second iteration. Yeah. And then I started Flick two, two and a half years ago. And then we started the sports card business about a year ago. Got it. I definitely want to talk about that. So for those aspiring entrepreneurs that are probably thinking, oh my God, I'm a first time you know, founder, mm-hmm. just like you were at the time. Yeah. How did you learn to pick up these things quickly? Because a lot of people, the stress, the pressure starts to build, right? But it seems like you navigated it just fine. <laughs> that looks good in retrospect. Yeah. It's incredibly stressful. Like I don't think anyone, and then there's a danger with entrepreneurs at my stage start to go, oh yes, this is how I did it. Like that's bullshit, right? Like it is incredibly nerve wracking, you know, doing something like this for the very first time where like for the first two, three, four years as an entrepreneur, I regularly looked at 
like smaller houses that I'm like, look, if it doesn't work out, we're obviously, we're going to have to sell the house. We're going to have to move something smaller. Like that's actually looks like quite a nice house. So, you know, and that was, a, I would have thought about that every week. It didn't, it was a good probably four years in before we really thought that we were, that a zero, we had moved beyond this prob- a high probability of being a zero. So there's not, I don't really have any great insight to say that apart from it's just completely normal. And it's not unreasonable, right? Like you're, you know, if you've started something, there's a very high probability that it'll fail. And that failure, even if it's not been your own money, is, is pretty going to be pretty painful if it does happen. And so, and that's the good thing is it means you focus, <laughs> you know, and, and that's, I find it incredibly focusing because, you know, I need that, right? But, you know, the downside is it's a bit all consuming. One thing I'm kind of taking from this too is the late Tony Shea just, he said this in the past, whatever you're thinking, think bigger, right? And I think out the gate, you thought pretty mm-hmm. big, right? Because you're going to yeah. be spending the same 24 hours every day. So Yeah, like, that's definitely true. I'll say one thing as well, which is, you know, a lot of times in these businesses, like your probability of success is the same, no matter whether you're thinking this big or like this big. But, you know, if you think this big, there's a probability you don't hit it and you just get to here. But if you're thinking here, there's a fair chance that you, like, you don't get anywhere. The other thing is if you're going to raise money and you go out pitching for this, you're just not going to raise it. You have to pitch for that. And so that definitely is kind of a forcing function to say, look, if we're going to go big, you know, if we're going to get anywhere, we have to go big. Another challenge is I think it's become increasingly hard to build solid small businesses, right? Because of the availability of capital in the market we were in, you know, I said we were close to profitability by about four years in, but we couldn't have just done that because we would have got destroyed by competitors who had raised, you know, I said we had raised 450 million. By that stage, our nearest competitor had raised a billion dollars. You know, if we had said, you know, when we had raised like 20 or 30 million, hey, we're good, we're profitable, we would have been blown away. And so, and I think it's a bit of an unfortunate thing, but it's a fact of life now. There is a lot of capital. If you prove something at a small scale, somebody's going to look at it and say, we could do that with 10x the money. And, you know, you're kind of, your cozy situation in the market is gone. Got it. So I'm looking at uh, Crunchbase and we, you know, sometimes it's not as accurate, right? Mm -hmm. So 2009, you guys raised your Series A's 1.2 and then about two years later, the 4 million bucks, right? So how, at that Series A, how was the company doing at that time? We called the 1.2 a Series A. Obviously we'd call it the seed now. So here's the interesting thing about the first round we raised. We raised it on the previous company, HubDub. And so... And it was like this online prediction market that didn't really have a business model, which was ambitious in retrospect. But And what happened was within two months, we went back to our investors and said, look, this isn't working, but we've got this new idea and it's called FanDuel. And that obviously was very successful. But at the time, you could imagine as an investor, you had just spent like six months doing due diligence on this company and this team. And they come in within two months and say, hey, that's not working, but don't worry, we're going to build this new thing. That was, uh, you know, it was pretty hairy moment and you know they backed us fortunately so that first million was for a different company in essence and then we pivoted into becoming Fandale. got it so real quick on that one how did you convince them that this new idea was the way forward i mean this is like a slack moment yeah it's like so i think it's pivoting has become more acceptable now people recognize things like slack it's like you know the guy who or the classic one was ev williams a twitter actually paid back a bunch of his investors and they took it back in money. And some of them said, no, let it ride. You know, I want to back you. 
and you know he feels a lot better about that. And there's a Slack I was just reading on Twitter yesterday. Somebody was insistent in getting paid cash and not equity early on. So, but back then, pivoting wasn't that normal. It was kind of considered to be a bit of a sin. <laughs> you know, I'd say on one side was investors really don't have a choice once they put the money in. There's no easy way for them to take the money out, right? Unless you've committed fraud or something. And the second one I'd say is that they kind of, they are backing the team. Like when you're putting, you know, early stage company, there was five of us, they put a couple of million in there. Like, yeah, they back in a team with an idea, but you know, they're really backing the team. And so they, and they were good like that. They said, look, you know, we're backing you guys. And so while we don't know anything about this space, you know, we're backing your, you know, your gut instinct is the right way to go. I love that. All right. So final question on this and we can move on. So, you know, those four years of basically eating dirt or even eating glass when you're not sure what's going to happen. Is there anything you did specifically? Like, did you join any peer groups to keep you sane? Like what actions did you take to keep you yourself above water? Yeah, I'd say the most valuable thing, and this I always advise entrepreneurs is spend lots of time with other entrepreneurs because there's always a danger. In fact, I was just chatting to an entrepreneur today that she was like, well, there's this other company raised the same time as us and they're already doing like 5 million in revenue, X, Y, Z. And I'm like, I bet you if you talk to that founder, they would be like, this is not working. The engineering team are mutinying. You know, the growth is slackened. And so, you know, when you don't, spend time with entrepreneurs, you think everybody's doing great. And when you do spend time with entrepreneurs, you realize that it's, there's a lot going on behind the headlines. Yes, there are like, you know, the top five, 10% of startups that are going great. And I know some of them, you know, most startups are failed companies. Let's just be clear, like they're not profitable. (laughs) They're dealing with multiple issues that major companies do not have to deal with. And they're trying to figure it out. And so spending time with other entrepreneurs, you're kind of going through the same challenges is really invaluable. That's awesome. So let's talk about the transition to Flick, which is the, mm-hmm. the main thing you're working on right now. Yeah. So what is it exactly? How does business model yeah. work? How do you guys make money? Yeah, so we are a group chat platform for sports fans, uh, particularly for live games. And it was something that we discovered when we were at FanDuel was that users love coming to FanDuel, playing the games, but they also wanted to hang out. You know, they play in fantasy sports. They also want to hang out with each other. There wasn't really a good place for that to do it. When we left FanDuel, my co-founder, Fangio, and myself were like, why don't we build that? And so we really built that experience. It's working really well for soccer right now. Our eyes are now set on uh, NBA. And the plan for monetization is that we, and we really started this, is the integration with sports betting. Uh, so sports betting is exploding market in the U.S. But the biggest challenge for the sports book is how to acquire new users. And what we have is a platform where sports fans want to hang out during games and so it's very natural that we basically upsell them into, into Sportsbook. So that's what we're working on right now. Got it. So, okay, so I'm assuming for, on the betting, you guys take a cut of that, and that's how yeah. you guys can buy it. Yeah, we take a share of lifetime value, or we get paid up front. Oh, okay, so you're probably integrating with all these other betting platforms out there. Yes, yeah, that's Got right. It. Okay, and so how is the business doing today in terms of uh, whatever numbers you're open to share, users, whatever? Yeah, so... We typically, the numbers we share is like our sort of numbers of some of our top groups. We've got hundreds of groups on the platform. Our top groups will have up to 10,000 DAUs. Uh, so these are groups like AFTV, which is an Arsenal group, or FB Army, which is a European soccer group. So that's kind of how we measure performance, which is how many groups can we get really active on the platform and that people are coming back every day. 
Got it. And so I want to talk about online communities. So, I mean, you're building another community right here. You did it with FanDuel as well. So, you know, a thing or two, how yeah. many people at its peak when you're there, FanDuel, how many people did you have? On the platform or yeah, employees? On the platform. I think, you know, several million paid active users. Got it. Um, I think on our, like a sort of our peak year. There you go. So you know a thing or two about online communities. I don't get online communities experts here a lot. So you know, what are the secrets here? Why online communities? Why the passions for online communities? Yeah. So like one of the things I'd say about online community, like online communities are incredible. Like if you can get a strong online community, you've got incredible stickiness, you've got incredible organic growth. You don't have to really pay to acquire because it just grows organically. The challenge is, is they're just really hard. Like they're really hard to start. The other thing that's interesting about online communities is you know, with a lot of products, you as the software engineer, the designer, directly drive the product experience for the user. But for online communities, the biggest part of the product experience is their interaction with other members. And you can't directly change that, right? And so you actually have to change the way, you know, you can't directly, so you have to like kind of sort of change the architecture to indirectly influence that so like people have a better experience and so things like well if somebody wants to troll the group they can do that but how do i ensure that doesn't happen that often or if it does happen we catch it so things like that that we can do to improve the quality and the sort of the health of the group are things that we're working on and those are like we find really hard like you know there's a reason why there's not that many very successful social networks and forums is because they kind of you know, they suffer with these kind of like trolling issues. And, and that's what we spend a lot of time working on. Got it. So what I'm hearing is obviously the acquisition piece is difficult, but the retention piece in terms of making a good experience is... Once you have a really good experience, like you're like, just to give you an idea, there are forums, like sports forums run teams that are 20, 25 years old. There's people still on them, right? And they're chatting away, you know, because that's where all their friends are. So they're very, very sticky once you kind of build that core community. They're just hard to like build in the first instance. Got it. I mean, you know, a lot of people, especially in you know tech world right now, are like, oh, the one-man media company. And I think it's really important to build that, the leverage of audience. But if you have mm-hmm. community, that's a couple levels above that, right? Yeah, absolutely. So are there any stories you can share? I think stories are always great. Anything you did around the FanDuel side or even with Flick where you just, you did this one thing and you just got, a ton of people into the community, anything like that? You know, it really differs. It differs by like market, you know, and I was just, again, I was at lunch with another entrepreneur today and her business is a relationship coaching app, right? Uh, this is my wife, actually, it's Leslie. It's, and she co-founded Fangel with me. It's called Relish. And I was talking about Starstock and Starstock just launched a referral system. So it's a member get member scheme been incredibly successful. It's really taken off. And, you know, we're talking about Relish and it's just a very different business, right? Because, you know, with relationship coaching, with sports trading cards, Starstock, those people tend to all know each other. And so it's very easy for a member to get member because people all trade with each other. With relationship coaching, the people who need it don't know lots of other people who need it. And so your means of go to market is just, is, is very different. So that's what I find with startups is it's very hard to give advice is general general to all startups because the thing that works varies by category. The only thing I'd say that always really works is really, really, really understanding your customer and why they buy the product, you know, why they buy it, what groups are they in, what were the paths for them finding it? Because it might be for relationship advice. The best place to find them is on Google. 
because they're looking for it, or it may be on Facebook or Instagram because they're, you know, in that demo, you know, they're married, they've been married for five years, their kids are like one or two. These are a classic scenario that where they might be looking for relationship coaching. So it really, you really have to understand those customers to understand the right way to market it. And nearly every marketing success that I've ever had has always come from just really understanding the customer as opposed to something was just really lucky. That's huge. I mean, we've had people on this podcast where one guy right now, he just raised 12, 13 million bucks from Andreessen Horowitz for his, his health patch. And he's done over a thousand customer development calls. And literally he called me, he's like, Hey, let's do a 45 minute call. I don't even know the guy. So that is nuts, right? To me. And I'm, yeah. but it makes a lot of sense. My other, there's another guy that's been on here and he just, he'll hit his up his email list and he'll kind of cherry pick. I guess my question here is what did you do? How does your customer success framework look? How do you approach it? Well, I think it's All right, customer development. That's what I mean. Customer development. Yeah. So it's a lot of qualitative and qualitative usually starts first. So just like talking to users, prospective users, really understanding it, moving beyond friends. Like in that early stage, people talk to friends. Friends tend to lie to you for like the very best reasons because <laughs> they don't want to tell you their baby is ugly. You really want to like get fresh users in, interview them. Under, like always the best ones understand how they currently try and solve that problem. It's always a bit of a tell if they don't really see it as a problem or if they don't have a solution because it might just not be a bigger problem as you think. So you start with that point. Then you move then to sort of more quantitative. And what I like to do with quantitative is in some points ask open questions. And then when you get that data back, then start to categorize it and say like, what do you, you know, instead of like giving them, you know, categorizing beforehand, actually let them tell you and you'll get qualitative input and then you can all start to see how much, how important those different ones are. Yeah. So, you know, some questions I got from this book called uh, the mom test is Nigel, what's the worst part of your day, right? <laughs> the worst part of work, right? Well, right. so you're basically asking open questions like that and trying to tease some type of answer. Yeah. Out. You know, everything we've always done, like we've had a thesis about what we're doing, but we kind of then need to test it and, and prove that really is an issue. And it's tough. Like when you work in something for like three, five, six months and like people are like, nah, <laughs> you know, one of the versions of Flick, you know, we were putting in front of like 16 and 17 year olds and they were just kind of like, yeah, it's kind of fun. I'd maybe use it. And you just knew it was a no, right? And you're like, wow, okay, that sucks. But, you know, you take it on board and then you kind of work on it and you go, well, what would you use and what are the gaps? And, you know, you take it from there. Yep. So I guess one thing coming back to fundraising real quick, I'm assuming the first time, the first go around, was it a lot more difficult than this time with Flick? Because this time you're a proven entrepreneur. Yeah, right? yeah, that, oh, absolutely. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, the other interesting thing is that, like, typically, like your earliest rounds are some of the hardest. The ones done, as long as the business is going well, the later rounds tend to be a little easier. But when you get the second go around, you do definitely get a lot of, like, you know, you get a lot more doors open. You still have to have a compelling vision and, you know, show traction, but no, you get definitely you get an easier ride. Got it. I guess a more pointed question for me would be how long was the dog and pony show the first time versus the second time? Like how Ooh. many months? Let me think. Well, our series A with FanDuel actually was, we were pretty lucky. We pitched about 20 investors. We got one term sheet. Our series B, we pitched like 86 investors. We got one term sheet. So that was the hard one. This time around, you know, it was maybe 30 we spoke to and we got multiple term sheets. That was on our seed round. On our A, we spoke to a similar number and we just actually, 
identified the right investor early on and we didn't even we could have got to competitive term sheets but we just sort of like look you know if you meet us on our price expectation then let's just let do business and that's what happened got it okay so i want to talk about the grand vision here so you got flick you got sports cards so actually let's talk about that business first so what is that business how does it work and all that stuff yeah so last summer myself and the two of the co-founders of this business I've always been fascinated with the idea of creating an athlete stock market and that looked at various iterations of how to do it and none of them have been very successful. And last summer, one of my co-founders, he was like, oh, you know, I collect and trade cards. And I was like, so you're telling me these cards go up and down in value depending on the performance of the athlete. And he's like, totally, like I'm an idiot. Of course they do. Like LeBron obviously is worth a lot more than, you know, the similar rookies who were drafted that year that didn't perform. And I was like fascinated. I'm like, well, I've always wanted to create this. And then we looked at when you trade cards and you're like, wow, there's so many like costs, like shipping and, you know, quality issues and you can't buy at scale and you have to deal with eBay. And so what we figured out is we could centralize all the cards into a vault. Then we could allow people to instantaneously trade the cards without ever actually having to touch the cards. And that's where you were like, wow, this is amazing. And so now Starstock launched six months ago. It now has over 300,000 cards in the vault with over 10,000 users. So, and those users are trading, actually look at the numbers, thousands of cards every day. And the cards generally are staying in the vault because people are trading them as opposed to getting them shipped back and forth. Got it. So starstock.com. And you guys, I'm looking at Crunchbase, can't find you there. I see a Spirits website. So is that just you guys bootstrap? Yeah, we've done like some seed investments in that one. Got it. Let me know if you're raising more. So, okay, what's the grand vision here? You got Starstock going on, which, which I think is a smart idea. You're talking online communities. What's the play? How do you mean? Yeah. So, I mean, there's got to be some type of grand vision, world domination here. I'm going to, we're going to build all these sports businesses. Like, what is it exactly? I wouldn't say there's that. There's just things that I'm interested in. <laughs> and with Starstock, that's something I'd been interested in for 10, 15 years. And so it just, I was lucky in that I knew my two co-founders and they were just perfect for it with some of the other things. So I'm on the board of a pizza oven company called Uni. Incredible business. It's done ridiculously well during COVID. It's O-O-N-I. And uh, there, I just got introduced to the founders and I just thought they were awesome. And they had this amazing vision for, you know, making pizza ovens and giving, letting people have pizza and have, you know, the whole kind of experience of eating outdoors with friends. And I just thought it was awesome. I just thought they were really cool and I wanted to work with them. And so I joined their board. And so haven't really got any particular grand vision beyond like, I like, you know, I really like working with people I like. And, you know, when I meet a founder who's got a real, you know, an exciting vision where I think I can add value, you know, what I find is there's been ways that we've been able to work together. Awesome. That's fair enough. Doesn't need to be complicated. So why, and this might be a complicated answer, why did you decide to sell FanDuel? Like when did you know it was the right timing? Yeah. So I left before the company sold. In Uh fact, the company actually just sold, you mentioned it sold uh, in 2018. It actually only sold this week. Um, yeah, I, I've seen that now. <laughs> yeah, you'll see the announcement. So the total company is worth uh, $11 billion. You know, the it definitely the logic of selling there was that Fangio was daily fantasy sports business, and they were leveraging that player base and brand into a much bigger market, which is sports betting. And as part of that, it just makes sense that, you know, we needed the expertise of somebody like Paddy Parbet Fair or Flutter Entertainment. And so that was a really great merger because you really brought that expertise 
into that company and, and created, you know, help created the, all that value. Got it. That's helpful. And I guess for Vandal, obviously you going through it, you're talking about constantly shifting. You guys are in hyper growth mode and then your executive team is probably changing frequently. So mm. what did you do to, to make sure that your team was in tip top shape and you were getting in the best people? I'd probably more focus on what we're doing differently now. Like I think we learned a lot in that space. Hyper growth is incredibly challenging to an executive team. And because, and you know, there's things like the person who was great early on, suddenly like it outgrows them. And dealing with that situation is really difficult because they're like, you know, they're friends and you want them to be part of the journey, but they're in the wrong role. It's very hard for somebody to step to a lower role. And some people become very disruptive when they sort of company changes. And, yeah. and so those are real challenges. Also, when you become like a high growth company, you get people joining for the wrong reasons, right? You know, early stage people mostly join because for the right reasons, they want to be part of, they want to come in early and, and do something really cool. They love the vision. You know, they have a personal connection with the founders. When you get to later stage, people join because they want to get rich. Like make them bones about it, right? Yeah. They want to make money. And some of them in the interview go, well, why do you want to join this company? And they basically say it, you know, for wealth creation. And you go, that is, the, I, I love your honesty. And there's the door. <laughs> because, you know, if you're here for that, then this is not the right company for you. Yeah. You know, go become an investment banker or something. But yeah, so, but a lot of them are like too smart for that. And they're like, oh no, I, you know, I'm there because I love your vision. And and you only find out later on that they're not there for that. They're really there. Easy to they say that. Make a lot of money. And, yeah. and finding that out. And then that's, you know, like we had to go through that, find out that not everybody was there for the right reason. And the problem is whenever you run into challenges as a business and every startup does, that suddenly they're not going to make tons of money. The people who are there for the right reason are still there for the right reason. They're like, I love this company. I love what we're trying to do. And like, you know, okay, we've hit speed bumps, but we're going to get there. Whereas the people who are there for the wrong reasons are like, you know, the worst is they don't ever quit. They always just complain. <laughs> <laughs> and it becomes really problematic. And you're like, oh, you know, and then you're also thinking like, we're really in that this company is a real problem. We're not going to be able to replace them. So I can't get rid of them. They're a problem. I can't get rid of them because I'm going to need somebody to do their role. And I'm a real problem situation. And so a lot of it becomes is like identifying people early on that are joining for the right reasons, be much better in selecting those people, trusting your gut in some of those instances, and then also just managing people as they develop through the company and, and helping to stretch people and sometimes also, you know, helping people into other roles that because they're they're just not suited to where the company needs to be. Right. Earlier, you just mentioned hanging out with entrepreneurs. Were you, at the time, were you in any founder groups, like a YPO or EO, anything like no, that? No, and I, every entrepreneur, first round entrepreneur, I always recommend they do them, whether it's Seed Camp in the UK or Y Combinator or Techstars. I, I just think it's invaluable. Yeah. Yeah, we sense. didn't do it. And, and, you know, in retrospect, I think it would have been very helpful to have done it. Got it. Okay. So let's start to working towards wrapping up here. I've got a couple of fun questions. So people, if they want to start to get better and, and really understand sports cards, where should they be going? What should they be reading? Oh, sports cards. You should go to starstock.com and, and start trading. There's a lot of blogs and podcasts. Podcasts are probably really the biggest in the industry right now that really kind of talk through what's happening and in sports cards that's typically where i kind of like and that's where like a year and a half ago i knew nothing about it and that's where i kind of learned about it do you have a favorite sports card podcast oh there's some good ones heroes for sale stacking slabs 
House of Jordans, I think it's a pretty good yeah. one as well. You guys do any Pokemon stuff? On your There's show? a lot of Pokemon, yeah. Pokemon's really taken off as well. Like the first series there is really shot up in value. Got it. Okay, so now, okay, we got that one. Now, how do you get better if people want to like, oh, I'm interested in sports betting, too. I want to get a little frisky. Oh, well, so flickapp.com and you can come and download. And it's really like, like Flick is a sports community. For even people who are not going to bet, it's a place to like hang out, make predictions, hang out with other fans, your team. Like what we say is like, look, the best place on the planet to watch your team is like courtside, right? Mm-hmm. That's not an option. It's like, like not an option for most people. And this year is not an option for anyone. Yeah. The living room is a distant, you know, compared to that. And so what we try to do with Flick is to be somewhere in as a middle ground, which is like, look, I can't be courtside, but I can be hanging out with 20,000 other fans. I can be cheering. I can be chatting to other people. I can be getting a sense of, you know, other fans, what they're saying about the game within the app. And so that's a great way to watch my team play being in a Flick group for my team. It kind of reminds me of early days of Discord where it's just focused on gamers and now it's yeah, kind of broadened out. Exactly. We've been inspired a lot by Discord. Yeah, amazing. All right. And so what would be one tool that you've added in the last 12 months that has been really good for you? Can't be any of your apps. Ooh, what have I added? Oof. Could I, be physical too. Physical. Oh, Peloton. I see one behind you. Yeah. It's awesome. It is really good. It is like, you know... I kind of expected quite a lot from it and it's been better. I've been very, very impressed. And even like looking at how they've designed the product and the achievements and the leaderboard. And I'm like, this is smart. Like, you know, at the start, I'm just like, I'm just there just to like do it. And then I'm like starting to see the leaderboard and I'm like, oh yeah, look, I got into the top 15% and I'm like, and it's kind of hitting my competitive instinct and they have streaks. So they've done a really nice job of building that product. Yeah. I probably would have gone insane if I didn't have it. How about your favorite business book? Ooh, what do I like there? Peter Thiel's Zero to One is really good. The Lean Startup books are really good. There's a couple. Uh, I think it's Eric Reese one. And Ben Horowitz's books are really, really good. Like those the culture like one? The, yeah, yeah, they're really good. There's very little good that's written about culture. In fact, I think that's the only good book I've read about culture, and it's really good. Yeah. Cool. So speaking of reading, the final question from my side would be, what is the most compelling thing that you've read, watched, or listened to recently? Queen's Gambit's pretty good. <laughs> I'm watching that at the moment. Compelling. I think it's kind of like a dopey story, but it's like, you know, great costumes, great acting, great set pieces. I wouldn't say it's good. You know, that's pretty compelling viewing. What else? I think that's the only thing I've been doing. No, that's totally fair, man. I actually haven't watched it yet, so that might actually inspire it's me. It's definitely worth watching. Yeah. All right. So... Nigel, this has been really good. What is the best way for people to find you online? So I'm Nigel Eccles on Twitter. Probably the most active place where I am. All right. Thanks so much for doing this. That's great. You may have completed this level, but many more bosses await. If you're looking to level up in marketing or business, just go to singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up to get access to our individual and team training programs. That's singlegrain.com forward slash leveling dash up.